When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dear Father Anderson, I may never go to Drogheda again, but I send my love to the very fields and trees along the Boyne, from Drogheda to Slane. Sometime, for my sake, go out to Douth alone, and go up on the moat and look across the Boyne, over to Rosnaree, to the hill of Tara and Newgrange, and Noth and Slane and Mellifont and Oldbridge, and you will see there the pictures that I carry forever in my brain and heart vivid as the last day I looked on them. If you go into the old graveyard at Douth, you will find my initials cut on a stone on the wall of the old church. This is from the side of the church nearest the Boyne. I remember cutting J-B-O-R on a stone with a nail 30 years ago. I should like to be buried just under that spot, and please God, perhaps someday I may be. So wrote John Boyle O'Reilly a few months before his death, aged 46, in 1890. He was writing from Boston to his friend Father James Anderson in Drogheda, homesick as always for his Boyne Valley. He had not seen Ireland since his deportation to Australia, convicted of treason 24 years earlier. But Ireland was his great love, remaining for him, as he described it in his own poem, the wonderful country far away. There once was a time when, as old songs prove it, the earth was not round but an endless plain. The sea was as wide as the heavens above it, just millions of miles, and began again. And that was the time, I and more's the pity, it ever should end when the world could play, when singers told tales of a crystal city in a wonderful country far away. John Boyle O'Reilly was born at Doth Castle in the Boyne Valley on the 28th of June, 1844. The hinterland here is redolent of ancient history. The centuries-abraded stone of ruined castle and monastery carries its own powerful charge. Here are places in whose very names old battles ring. Old Bridge, scene of the Battle of the Boyne, where William of Orange routed James II, Royal Tara, seat of the High Kings, the Hill of Slane, where Patrick lit his paschal fire to mark the dawn of Christianity in Ireland, Mellifont Abbey, the first Cistercian foundation in Ireland, founded by St Malachy, and the passage tombs of Noth and Doth and Newgrange. In this milieu, 
helped by parents themselves intensely interested in history, young John grew up. My childhood was happy, permeated by nature and by a great sense of the history of my native place. My parents were assiduous in imparting their knowledge of that history to me, something for which I am eternally grateful. But the memory he was to recall most from those early days, talking and writing about it often, was that of his first dog, a... Brown, broad-backed, thick-legged, round-bodied spaniel puppy about a month old, given me by a friend when I was about nine years of age. It gratified a craving which I then had, and have not yet lost, to own a dog. Its possession was one of the delicious incidents and is now one of the delicious memories of my life. That little brown fat dog that could not walk through the meadow but had to jump over every tangled spot and miss five times out of six and then had to be taken up and carried. He never could trot, he was so fat and round, but always galloped or walked like an Australian horse. The possession of that little brown spaniel puppy made me one of the happiest and proudest boys in Ireland. But, much as John enjoyed his childhood, it came to an end rather prematurely. Though his schooling was not quite finished, he left at the age of 11 to work in the Drogheda Argus newspaper for a wage of two and six a week. This gave him his first taste of the excitement there was in a newspaper office and printing works. And he never lost this sense of excitement in the printed word, the deadlines and the headlines. Thirty years later, when editor of the Boston Pilot, he said to a friend... I got my first injection of printer's ink in that dingy little newspaper office in Drogheda, and the charge is still in my veins. But I got something else there also. Even at that early age, I had a great awareness of the enormous responsibility attending the printing of words on paper for public reading. And I got a great sense of how powerful those words could be, for good or for evil, however simple or commonplace the story. At the end of his first year in the Argus, the owner died. The company was reorganised and in the process young John's apprenticeship was terminated. But he was determined that he was going to continue to work in newspapers and, through the good offices of an uncle, secured a post as a junior reporter with The Guardian in Preston, Lancashire. He was 15 years old and, though homesick at the start, he quickly made good friends. The fact that Preston had its river, the Ribble, was a help. It reminded him of the Boyne. All the years and events fade when I remember dear old Preston and I find myself on the ribble in an outrigger striking away under Walton Heights or pulling a race with a friend between the bridges. Do you remember the day we went to Ribchester and walked up along the river to Stonyhurst? Somehow that day stands out as one of the happiest and brightest in my life. Though I spent only a few years in Preston, I love it and the friends I made there better than any I have since known. In worldly ways I have prospered, and in literary repute I stand well here in America. I am busy from morning till night, but under all the changed appearances and surroundings, the stream of my old friendships and pleasures flow steadily along. After three and a half years in Preston, O'Reilly came back to Ireland and joined the British Army's 10th Hussars. It was alleged at his trial that he joined the British military service 
with the specific objective of overthrowing the monarchy, a treasonable act in itself. He was arrested in January 1866 and charged with having at Dublin in January 1866 come to the knowledge of an intended mutiny in Her Majesty's forces in Ireland and failing to give information of said intended mutiny to his commanding officer. The fact that I was a member of the Fenian Brotherhood and at the same time a soldier in the British Army was enough to condemn me before I even came to trial. When he did come to trial in Dublin on July 9th, 1866, he was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. He appealed this sentence and it was reduced to life imprisonment and finally to penal servitude for 20 years. So began my terrible odyssey through the British penal system. Though I could not possibly know then that I would never, never see Ireland again. And the first way station on the Odyssey was Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin. Here the 22-year-old felon awaited transfer to mainland Britain. He spent his time thinking about his childhood in the Boyne Valley and writing poetry. The poem The Old School Clock was written in Arbor Hill Prison. In it he remembers noticing, on a recent visit to his old schoolroom at Netterville, how that old clock had been replaced. Old memories rush o'er my mind just now, of faces and friends of the past, of that happy time when life's dream was all bright, ere the clear sky of youth was o'ercast. Very dear are those memories, they've clung round my heart, and bravely withstood time's rude shock. But not one is more hallowed or dear to me now than the face of the old school clock. T'was a quaint old clock with a quaint old face and great iron weights and chain. It stopped when it liked, and before it struck, it creaked as if t'were in pain. It had seen many years, and it seemed to say, I'm one of the rear old stock, to the youthful fry who with reverence looked on the face of the old school clock. O'Reilly was eventually transferred to England to serve out his sentence and was incarcerated in Pentonville and Millbank. He attempted to escape on three occasions, and this, together with growing agitation in Ireland for his release, decided the authorities to have him transported to Australia. He left England in November 1867 and arrived at Fremantle's Whitestone Prison in January 10th, 1868. The two-month voyage was hell, but... Ever resourceful, the young O'Reilly set about raising the morale of his fellow prisoners. Conditions were so bad that two days out, with the help of Father Delaney, the ship's chaplain, I set about organising the prisoners. Their morale was low, and there was no semblance of order or purpose in their lives. We started a little theatrical group to produce plays and sketches, and with the help of some others, I engaged in the production of a weekly newsletter. We call this The Wild Goose, and it was published every Saturday. We brought out seven numbers on the voyage, and every Sunday I would sit below decks with my comrades and read it to them. Another priest, Father Lynch, the chaplain at Fremantle, had been appraised through the Irish underground of O'Reilly's arrival. He arranged a job for him in the prison library. While this was better than out-breaking stones, O'Reilly was restive and he was made more restive still by coming across a copy of Lincoln's speeches and the Declaration of Independence in the library. I found this book in the prison library, a book I had thought not to find in such a place. 
My pulse beat faster when I read therein. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I knew in that moment of revelation, there in that Australian prison, that America was the country for me. After several months working in the library, O'Reilly, convict number 9843, was sent to work in the Mahogany Forest. I had been warned by Father Lynch that it was almost useless to try escaping from this wilderness, but my one ambition was to be free. During his time working in the Mahogany Forest, O'Reilly fell foul of a particularly sadistic overseer. He reported me for being late one day, and being reported meant that I could neither write nor receive letters for six months. Some days later, this brutish overseer called me into his office and with a cruel smile showed me a letter, edged with black, addressed to me. I presumed this was news of my mother's death, for she had been ailing for some time, but I could not verify it by having access to my letter until the six months were up. When he did open the letter, his worst fears were confirmed. His mother had died in Ireland. He was distraught for several days. Then he came out of mourning with renewed determination to escape and wrote this poem, My Mother's Memory. There is one bright star in heaven, ever shining in my night. God to me one guide has given, like the sailor's beacon light, set on every shoal and danger, sending out its warning ray to the homebound weary stranger looking for the landlocked bay. In my farthest, wildest wanderings, I have turned me to that love, as a diver neath the water turns to watch the light above. Working in the forest had its odd moments of pleasure, even of achievement of a sort, for John. Working in the mahogany forest one day, following the course set out for our road gang by the engineers and surveyors, we came to a giant yarra tree, a superb tree representing centuries of growth its arms reaching to the sky. Our orders were to cut it down, for it lay in the middle of the surveyed road. I argued and pleaded with our overseer for its preservation. He, of course, could not make such a decision, but I did persuade him to let me see the district commander. That official's wife admired the stand I had taken and asked to be taken to see the tree. The tree was saved and the course of the road changed. That Yarra tree stood as a monument to John Boyle O'Reilly until it was felled to make clear the path of a new motorway in 1956. A plan to achieve the escape of John Boyle O'Reilly had been in place within months of his arrival in the penal colony. It had been masterminded by the Fenian Brotherhood in America and Australia. In the bush, it was organised by an Irish priest, Father McCabe, known to the convicts as Father Mac. Just over a year after O'Reilly's arrival in Australia, two American whaling ships came to the port of Bunbury. 
both captains, sympathetic to the Irish cause, had agreed to take O'Reilly on board and carry him on the first leg of his long voyage to America and safety. Father Mac had arranged helpers for this hazardous trek through the bush. After that, O'Reilly was on his own until his rendezvous with the ships. I reached the coast of Western Australia on the 18th of February, 1869. I hid in the long grass of the sand dunes, and then, after dark, I seized a small boat without a sail and put to sea. My first rendezvous was with the Vigilant, but somehow I missed that, and she passed far to seaward of me in the night. I then had to return to shore and hide for several days, trying to calculate accurately, in hope and in desperation, my second rendezvous, this time with the gazelle, for if I should miss this, all was lost. I put to sea for a second time, and it pleased God that my tiny boat should be seen by the lookout on the gazelle's masthead. The gazelle on a seven-month whaling voyage was commanded by Captain Gifford, he soon became a close friend of the escapee. Captain Gifford, whose ship picked me up, treated me with all kindness possible. He knew full well who I was and installed me as a cabin passenger. On one occasion I had a very close escape from being retaken, but Mr Hathaway, first mate of the Gazelle, was determined I should not be. In an English island to which we called, the Governor came on board and demanded that I should be given up to him but the first mate answered boldly and convincingly, pointing to the stars and stripes at half-mast. I know nothing of the convict O'Reilly you talk of, who escaped from New Holland, but I did know a Mr O'Reilly, a political prisoner there, and he was on board this ship, but accidentally fell overboard and was drowned two days ago. The governor had to be content with that. The gazelle took him as far as the Cape of Good Hope, and there he was transferred to another American ship, the Sapphire, out of Boston. Before parting... Captain Gifford very generously lent me 20 guineas to help me on my way to America. Four years later, now a successful journalist and writer... John Boyle O'Reilly dedicated his first book of poems to... Captain David Orr Gifford, master of the whaling bark Gazelle, New Bedford. And that book carried this tribute to David Gifford, who sadly died before the book reached him. A soft-breasted bird from the sea fell in love with the lighthouse flame, and it wheeled round the tower on its weariest wing and floated and cried like a lovelorn thing. It brooded all day and fluttered all night, but could win no look from the steadfast light, for the flame had its heart afar, afar with the ships at sea. It was thinking of children and waiting wives and darkness and danger to sailors' lives, but the bird had its tender bosom pressed on the glass where at last it dashed its breast. The light only flickered, the brighter to glow, but the bird lay dead on the rocks below. O'Reilly arrived in Liverpool on October 13, 1869 
after nine months at sea. He was lodged in a safe house in the city, waiting passage to America. He became bored with the long wait, and such was his sense of good humour that he would often go into the crowded dockside streets and boldly inquire of a policeman the way to some real or imagined destination. The idea of an escaped convict asking a policeman for directions gave both John and his loyal English friend a lot of amusement. Eventually he took ship for America. On the second evening out of Liverpool, he was called on deck by the captain. Who told me we would shortly pass very near the coast of Ireland and that I should be able to see the hills before the sun went down. I was overjoyed and waited in great excitement for my first glimpse of my wonderful country, my first glimpse in over two years. But it was not to be. The sun was very low and a large bank of dark cloud had begun to form along the horizon. Ireland was there, under the sun, but under the dark cloud also. The rays of golden glory fell down from behind the dark cloud, fell down like God's pity on the beautiful tear-stained face of Ireland, fell down on the dear familiar faces of my old home, fell down on the tree, the wood, the river, lighting them all once more with the same heaven tent that I loved to watch long ago. Oh, how vividly did that long ago rise up before me then. The happy home, the merry playmates, the faces, the voices of dear ones who are there still, and the hallowed words of dearest ones who are dead. Down on all fell the great glory of the setting sun, lighting that holy spot that I might never see again. A mother's grave, lighting the heart with sorrow-shaded devotion. Home, friends, all that I loved in the world were there, almost beside me, there under the sun. And I, for loving them, a hunted, outlawed fugitive, an escaped convict, was sailing away from all I treasured, perhaps forever. John Boyle O'Reilly arrived in Philadelphia on November 23rd, 1869. His first act was to apply to the United States District Court and take out his first naturalization papers. O'Reilly's fame, indeed his legend, had preceded him and within a month of his arrival in America he was in demand as a lecturer. He met many of his fellow countrymen in Boston and was introduced to the owner-editor of the Boston Pilot. In the spring of 1870 he was invited to join the staff of that paper. As reporter and general features writer. He quickly became famous for his total honesty, never afraid to condemn even his own countrymen when he perceived them to act in the wrong manner. One of his great early articles was written following the riots between Orangemen and Catholics in New York just after he had joined the paper. Many people were killed in those riots. O'Reilly spared nobody. What are we in the eyes of the Americans? Aliens from a petty island in the Atlantic, boasting of our patriotism and fraternity, and showing at the same moment the deadly hatred that rankles against our brethren and fellow countrymen. Why must we carry, wherever we go, these accursed and contemptible island feuds? Shall we never be shamed into the knowledge of the brazen impotence of allowing our national hatreds to disturb the peace and safety of the respectable citizens of this country? Must the day come when the degrading truth cannot be muffled up, 
that the murderous animosity of Irish partyism has become a public nuisance in almost every corner of the world. But there was nothing partisan in O'Reilly's attitude. He castigated both sides. We cannot dwell on this subject. We cannot and we care not to analyse this mountain of disgrace to find out to which party the blame is attached. Both parties are to be blamed and condemned for both having joined in making the name of Irishmen a scoff and byword of this day for America. Yet his sensitivity, generosity and kindness were also evident in those early days in Boston. He wrote to Colonel John O'Mahony in Ireland. Dear Sir, I am sorry that your letter has remained unanswered until now. I was absent from Boston and did not receive it. Will you, in returning this cheque to the Ladies' Committee in Ireland, express my deep gratitude for their thoughtful kindness? Of course I cannot accept it. There are many in Ireland, many who suffer from the loss of their breadwinners in the old cause. They need it. Let them have it. It is enough, more than enough, for me to know that I have been remembered in Ireland, and that still in the old land, the spirit of our cause and the energies of our people are living and acting. Even in those early days in America, the brio, the self-confidence and self-knowledge that had sustained him through his penal servitude were becoming evident. In a letter to an aunt... My dear aunt, I am a fortunate fellow to have pulled clear through. I am likely to become a prosperous man in America. I write for the magazines and report for the pilot, drill the Irish Legion, make speeches at public meetings and lecture for charities. I just manage to live as a gentleman... I have paid my debt to the captain who brought me here. In a few years it will be my own fault if I do not make a name worth bearing. When O'Reilly became editor of the pilot, he looked to the old country for contributions from some of our best-known writers. Yeats published one of his earliest poems in the paper, a poem called Ferenc Renyi, a long 117-line tribute to an Hungarian revolutionary. The opening lines... We too have seen our bravest and our best to prisons go, and mossy ruin rest, where homes once whitened vale and mountain crest. Therefore, O nation of the bleeding breast, libations from the hungry of the West. Are full of a sense of martyrdom, but Yeats also wrote a series of prose pieces for the pilot called Letters to the New Island for the most part just gossipy. Miss Maud gone, as eloquent with her tongue as was Speranza with her pen, has made her voice heard where so many have failed. Every speech has been a triumph. Thousands have come to see this beautiful woman, this new wonder... Lady Wilde still keeps up, in spite of London's emptiness. Her Saturday afternoon receptions, though the handful of callers contrast mournfully with the roomful of clever people one meets there in the season, there is no better time, however, to hear her talk than now, when she is unburdened by weary guests, and London has few better talkers. 
There has been some talk lately in the Parnell Commission about the Clondalkin branch of the National League. Archbishop Walsh, in his evidence, mentioned it as the only branch whose action he had been impelled to condemn. They had written up a blacklist of people they did not approve of. When I was in Ireland, I saw a great deal of the man who was the main mover in the matter. Not at all a firebrand, one would think, but a quiet shoemaker who had read and thought a great deal. But not all of the Yeats' contributions to the pilot were literary and political gossip. He was very serious about the kind of theatre he wanted in Ireland. I wanted a theatre hard to get into, like a secret society. And he saw Ireland's future quite clearly in a romantic light. Here in Ireland, the marble block is waiting for us, almost untouched and the statues will come as soon as we have learned to use the chisel. In our past alone is enough of the stuff that dreams are made of to keep us busy for a thousand years. Another Irish contributor to the pilot was the poet T.W. Rolleston, with a verse that was sometimes mildly political. Because you have suffered for the cause, because you strove with voice and pen, to serve a law above all laws that purifies the hearts of men. Because you failed and grew not slack, not sullen and disconsolate, nor stopped to seek a lower track, but showed your soul a match for fate. But mainly full of Celtic mist and twilight, and a sentimentality that appealed to the Irish-American mood at that time. Where glows the Irish hearth with peat, there lives a subtle spell the faint blue smoke, the gentle heat, the moorland odours tell. Of white roads winding by the edge, of bare untamed land, where dry stone wall or ragged hedge runs wide on either hand. And when the wavering wreaths ascend, blue in the evening air, the soul of Ireland seems to bend above her children there. Perhaps the best Irish contributor to the pilot was Lady Wilde, writing as Speranza. She could see things as they really were. It is remarkable also that wherever the Irish are located in other lands, they never forget the old country. It is still the mecca to which their eyes are ever turned. Exile even seems to intensify their feelings, and their fearless oratory of passion glows with a fire that would be impossible in the police-ruled country at home. In America, free speech knows no limits with regard to the past and future of Ireland. Irish festivals are celebrated there. Memorial rituals keep the martyrs of freedom forever living before the eyes of the people. Clubs are named after the leaders of the Irish revolt. Solemn processions mark the anniversary of each national tragedy. This consecration of revolt, this canonization of the victims of rebellion, has a powerful influence on the young generation of American Irish. It is singular that the Irish may live for years in England, yet they never acquire the English manner, calm, grave, self-possessed, nor the English habit of order or routine. While in America, the Irish become rapidly Americanized, bold in speech, audacious in enterprise, 
self-asserting in manner, and above all, republicanized in sentiment. No Irishman returns from America loyal to the monarchy. In all his years as editor and part owner of the pilot, John Boyle O'Reilly never lost his strong conviction, acquired many years before in the Drogheda Argus, of the power of the printed word, and the great, great responsibility of those who write and publish it. In an address to the famous Papyrus Club, on his election as its president, he said, Ours is the newest and one of the greatest professions, involving wider work and heavier responsibilities than any other. For all time to come, the freedom and purity of the press are the test of national virtue and independence. No writer for the press, however humble, is free from the burden of keeping his purpose high and his integrity white. The dignity of the communities is largely entrusted to our keeping. We must always strive to keep this freedom and purity on the public shield in our charge. It is necessary to assure ourselves that, whatever else changes, the hearts of men do not, but still beat in kindly and brotherly sympathy and goodwill to all. He perceived the newspaper as the biography of a day, a photograph of twenty-four hours' length of the mysterious river of time sweeping past us forever. And yet we take our year's newspapers which contain more tales of sorrow and suffering, joy and successes, ambition and defeat, villainy and virtue, than the greatest book ever written, and we give them to the girl to light the fire. In August 1872... John married Mary Murphy of Charlestown, Massachusetts. His best-known poem, The Falcon and the Dove, was written for her. The red rose whispers of passion, and the white rose breathes of love. Oh, the red rose is a falcon, and the white rose is a dove. But I send you a cream-white rosebud, with a flush on its petal tips, for the love that is purest and sweetest has a kiss of desire on the lips. The couple had four daughters, and John wrote this poem for one of them, Little Blunnet. I told her a story, a fairy story, my little daughter with eyes of blue, and with clear wild gaze as the splendours brightened, she always asked me, oh, is it true? Always that word when the wonder reached her, the pictured beauty so grand and new, when the good were paid and the evil punished, still with soft insistence, oh, is it true? Ah, late drear knowledge from sin and sorrow, how will you answer and answer true? Her wistful doubt of happy ending, wise child, I wondered how much she knew. John Boyle O'Reilly, through the pilot and his public speeches, became the standard bearer of the downtrodden, the champion of near-hopeless causes. 
Irish, Indian, Negro or Jew, it mattered not to him. In an address to Negroes, he exhorted them, I don't care what your political preferences or parties are. I don't care whether you vote the Republican or Democratic ticket. But I know, if I were a coloured man, I would use parties as I would use a club, to break down prejudices against my people. I shouldn't talk about being true to any party, except so far as that party was true to me. Parties care nothing for you, only to use you. You should use parties. The highest party you have in this country is your own manhood. That is the thing in danger from all parties. That is the thing that every coloured American is bound in his duty to himself and his children to defend and protect. With his indomitable optimism, he saw a bright future for the American Negro, and he told them so. No man ever came into the world with so grand an opportunity as the American Negro. He is like new metal dug out of the mine. In his mind he carries the traditions of Africa, in his heart still ring the free sounds of the desert. And O'Reilly was always intensely interested in what was happening in Ireland. The long struggle for home rule engaged him. Ireland asks for the moral support of all good men of all nations in her effort to secure home rule. Surely the government that has no other answer to give to an industrious moral people living in so rich a land than starvation or immigration is arraigned and condemned in the sight of God and man and ought to be wiped out. The government of England ought to be taken from the hands of the cruel and senseless aristocracy that has misruled so long, and it ought to be passed into the hands of the English and Irish people to whom it belongs. But the actual Home Rule Bill did not please him. It is full of faults and dangers. It is Home Rule only in name as at present developed. The marks of conceding and temporising in Cabinet Council are on every clause outlined. It says life and it enacts death. O'Reilly publicly denounced the Phoenix Park murders of Cavendish and Burke. The assassination was coolly planned and carried out with intellectual precaution and cruelty. It was perpetrated within the shadow of the Viceregal Lodge and within a few hundred yards of the chief constabulary barracks in Ireland. I say here tonight that the deed was not committed by the Irish people. I say it was committed by the class known as gentlemen by the class whose power and livelihood were threatened by the death of coercion. However, it was not just the great national issues that interested O'Reilly. Full of humanity and kindness, he was passionately interested in the plight of individuals also, particularly old friends like Tom, still a political prisoner in England. John wrote to him, approaching Christmas. My dear old friend, I cannot go to my home tonight without writing to you and actually saying the words, May you have a happy Christmas, as happy as you may have in your sad surroundings. I grieve to hear of your failing health. Dear Tom, a stout heart helps keep a man healthy, so bear up. I do not believe you will be long more a prisoner, but long or short, try to husband your health for the time of delivery. O'Reilly's greatest sorrow was that, as an unpardoned felon and escaped prisoner, he could never return to Ireland, still under British rule. 
Often in his hyperactive life he would become homesick for the Boyne Valley, and in such a mood he wrote The Cry of the Dreamer. I am tired of planning and toiling in the crowded hives of men, heart-weary of building and spoiling, and spoiling and building again. And I long for the dear old river where I dreamed my youth away, for a dreamer lives forever and a toiler dies in a day. Let me dream as of old by the river and be loved for the dream alway, for a dreamer lives forever and a toiler dies in a day. John Boyle O'Reilly died aged 46 in Hull, Massachusetts on August 10, 1890. His death was caused by mistakenly taking medication intended for his sick wife. It caused a great wave of shock in the United States. Tributes were paid by Mayor Hart of Boston. We feel so much for him as a citizen that we almost forgot he was born in another clime. He assimilated himself so perfectly among us that we hardly turn to remember that he came to us an exile and a fugitive because he was a patriot and loved his people. The Honourable Patrick A. Collins. He was Irish and American, intensely both, but more than both. The world was his country, and mankind was his kin. General Benjamin F. Butler. For 12 years, I've been legal advisor to John Boyle O'Reilly, a most unprofitable client, for he has never had a common lawsuit or a contention. He had one weakness, a very uncomfortable one for him. He could not hear a tale of woe or misfortune that he did not set himself about rectifying or relieving it. Bishop Healy of Portland. He is gone. Our friend sleepeth. The body indeed rests in the tomb, far from the land he longed so much to revisit. But the soul lives unto God. John Boyle O'Reilly wrote and published one novel called Moondyne. The main character is a prisoner named Moondyne Joe, and it is generally accepted that the novel is, to some extent, autobiographical. Moondyne Joe is modelled on O'Reilly himself, and the description fits that of the writer. In strength and proportion of body, the man was magnificent, a model for a gladiator. He was of middle height, young, but so stern and massively featured, and so browned and beaten by exposure, it was hard to determine his age. A large, finely shaped head, with crisp black hair and beard, a broad, square forehead, and an air of power and self-command. This was Moondyne Joe. John Boyle O'Reilly had once written to his friend and Drogheda, Father Anderson, telling him of the stone in the wall of the old church at Douth, where he had carved his initials with a nail many years ago. He expressed a wish then that he might some day be buried under that stone, and that wish has, in a way, been granted. 
Long after his death, a relative from Boston visiting Douth discreetly had the stone removed and took it back to America, where it was placed above O'Reilly's grave.